0: Where does this take you? X-Factor judges emerging from dry ice, World of Warcraft, or a buffed surfer barrelling down a wave. If it's the last one, that probably says something about your age because the Old Spice Aftershave ad that made this music even more famous than it already was came out in the 1970s. Whatever it reminds you of, the chances are you'll recognize it straight away from somewhere because it's just so thrilling. This is O Fortuna the most famous part of Carmina Burana by the 20th century German composer Karl Orff. It's one of the most performed choral works of the 20th and 21st centuries, probably the most. Why is it so popular? What makes it unusual? And why do some people have some very negative feelings towards it? This two and a half minute section of a two hour piece gets used all over the place in movies, TV shows, ads, talent competitions, computer games. What is it about this piece that gives it so much impact?
1: Just hearing that sound coming out from behind you. It's a guttural thing. It's something that you don't just hear. It's something that you feel.
2: And it's so short and it's just like this fast,
0: furious vocal ride that's anne-marie minhall the presenter of classic fm's afternoon request show and linton stevens the host of radio 3's classical fix that gives music loving guests a taste of classical music so let's start with the elephant in the room (laughs) you might be able to hum the tune but can you sing along with the words Unless you have done some quick googling, I suspect the answer is no. So before we start working out what gives the music its impact, let's get a handle on what on earth it is they're singing about. To help us with that, I'm joined once again by Eloise Poulton, our fact finder from episode one. Hello, Eloise.
3: Hello, David.
0: So this piece has
3: extremely loud bits
0: and very soft bits, and we do our best to spit out the words, but they're not easy to understand. What is the choir singing about here?
3: You're right, it's not easy. In fact, there are loads of YouTube videos with misheard lyrics for O Fortuna that involve cheese, peas, and octopuses in boots. (laughs) I'll leave everyone to find those. Let's focus on the actual words. Choral music often uses Latin, as we saw in the DSC array from the Verdi Requiem in our second episode. And this is Latin, but not the usual kind of religious text that gets set to music. Carmina means songs and Burana is the Latinized form of Buren, the name of a Benedictine monastery, Benedict Buren in Bavaria. So the name of the work literally means Songs of Buren. This refers to a collection of 13th century songs, over a thousand of them in fact, discovered at this monastery in 1803. They were written in a mix of Latin, German and Old French by the Goliards, a band of poet-musicians, They're quite earthy and funny and celebrate the joys of nature, drinking and love, or more often, lust. The collection was published in German in 1847, but Karloff didn't discover it till 1934. He decided to set 24 of them to music. Carmina Burana is divided into three sections, springtime, in the tavern and the court of love. And the work begins and ends with a plea to fortune. O Fortuna, the two-and-a-half-minute piece that has become so famous.
0: Okay, so this is definitely not a religious piece. It uses several languages and this part, the O Fortuna, is in Latin. Can you tell us what the words mean?
3: Yes, the words complain to fate or fortune. O Fortuna, O Fate. Velut Luna, you are like the moon. Statu variabilis, you are changeable. And then the quiet part. semper always waxing. Out de and always waning. Vita de ter stabilis, hateful life. Nunc obdurat et tunc curat. First you oppress us, and then you soothe. Ludo mentis atsiem, playing with the clarity of our minds. Basically doing our heads in. So it's
0: a moan, really which might explain why, even though that opening is very stirring, the whole piece has quite a dark, ominous feel. It's written in D minor, the key Mozart based his Requiem on. A minor key always makes music sound more pessimistic than a major one. And then those huge chords at the beginning, well, there's something about the way they're constructed that makes them so dramatic and a bit unsettling. Let's listen to them a bit more closely and, as always, I have asked the Bach choir and our esteemed accompanist Phil Scriven to help me illustrate what I mean. OK, so we're going to go from the beginning. Remember, this begins in this outrageous way. You get one D, then that added nine. What is a ninth? Well, you get eight notes in a scale. That's a minor scale, so a little dark. Then you add a ninth. The base of this movement is basically a D. But the very first few bars, uh, we're just slightly away from the bass. So here it is. Let's all sing this first two bars. You see how that works? You know, we've got the alto and the bass moving together and then we've got the sopranos and the tenors moving together and so on. There is a kind of double unison thing going on and we're then all resolved by the end of the bar. Then now the next thing, the third bar. It's not just the notes in the chords that get us, it's the way the chords progress. Move from one group of notes to the next and with a descending bass at the same time. And when we arrive at variabilis, all the discords and the unexpected notes fall away and the chord is resolved. But not so resolved that we don't have an overwhelming sense of forward momentum, of expectation. The power of the piece has been spotted by movie makers, TV producers, computer game developers and advertisers. It has huge appeal, even for people who wouldn't say they are classical music lovers. Linton Stevens is a professional bassoonist who plays with some of the country's most prestigious orchestras, a broadcaster, a teacher, and someone who is passionate about introducing new audiences to classical music. He presents the Radio 3 show Classical Fix, where he invites music-loving guests to sample a playlist of classical music he has chosen especially for them. What gives O Fortuna its appeal? A huge amount is to do with its use in
1: popular media. I mean, there's nothing more raw or primal than the sound of the voice, I think. And if you're lucky enough to sing in a choir, it's something you understand when you perform, that feeling of your voice coalescing with other people's voices, making harmony. And so when we hear it recorded, we hear it back in media. I think that initially does something to us. And this, it starts out so dramatically and and it's often used to accompany something dramatic or something you know impending whether that be danger or glory or something you know mm. we hear those opening chords from the choir and we know there's something big something momentous is about to happen but it's not just singing is it it's the voice at its extreme
0: what goes on in the music that makes people think oh what's this this piece again
1: I'm in a very fortunate position in that I get to hear music from a very 360 point of view in that I get to play it, I get to listen to it, and I get to talk about it as well. It's interesting for me because all of those hats that I wear help to shape my opinion of this piece. I remember playing this piece for the first time. It's funny being in that sound world. There's nothing like it. It's one thing to be sat in an orchestra making this big sound. It's another thing to have the choir stood behind you especially as a person very often we have the choir stood behind us and having to tell them to lift up their sheets so they don't spit on the back of our (laughs) heads just hearing that sound coming out from behind you it's a guttural thing it's something that you don't just hear it's something that you feel and once you've experienced it in that way that then it informs how you experience it in any other way whether it's talking about it whether it's listening to it It's such a good piece for what it does, which is portraying that drama.
0: Where were we? Oh, yes. After the huge, rich, lush chords of the opening, Orv suddenly cranks the volume right down for the next section. The choir is almost whispering, which makes it even harder to get those words across. But the composer has been quite specific about how they should be sung. Each of these notes is marked as separate. So it has to be, Sempe Crestis, After Crestis. Got it? you can't do is put them together. So say it from the way you begin, Sempe. And it's one, two, three, go. Sempe Crestis, after Crestis, de What we have to do is remember, as soon as you attach sound to that, the sounds need to be super short and soft. So let's try a little bit now with the sound from the same place. Now you can hear some more clues as to why this piece has got under people's skins. There is something about that repetition over and over again of this really very simple note sequence while the melodic pattern slowly changes and the chords give us that feeling of momentum, of moving forward. In fact, this was the beginning of what's come to be known as minimalism in music. If you've ever come across composers like Michael Nyman who did the music for the movie The Piano or heard music by Philip Glass or Steve Reich you'll hear that they do a very similar thing, repeated patterns that gradually change. There's something very satisfying about it. Hamida Burana was first performed in 1937 and mostly people loved it. In fact, Orff was so excited by how well it went down, he told his publishers to destroy everything he'd written up to that point. His works began here. But not everyone was impressed. People dismissed the writing as boring and lacking in subtlety. And there were some particularly vocal critics from rather difficult quarters. Eloise
3: So yes, Karl Orff was obviously at the height of his career in Germany, just as Hitler and his Nazi party were on the rise. Orff was quite left-wing in his beliefs, and in the past had been attacked by the fascist government as a cultural Bolshevist. When Carmina Barana was first performed, the influential Nazi musicologist Hans Gehrig said the work suffered from a mistaken return to primitive elements of instrumentalism and a foreign emphasis on rhythmic formulae. However, the Nazi regime gradually changed their opinion and grew to love it. In fact, one critic compared its rhythms to the stamping columns of the Third Reich. When Carmina Burana was performed at the La Scala Opera House in 1942, it was to celebrate Hitler's regime, which wasn't a good look for Karl Orff. There were questions asked about him after the war. The Americans evaluated artists who had remained active under the Nazis – Orff was rated Gracie acceptable, basically someone who had kept operating but wasn't necessarily sympathetic to the cause. Orff was ultimately granted a licence to compose and guest conduct. But the fact is, nothing he wrote after Carmina Brana was even nearly as successful.
0: Not that you want to be popular with the Nazis, but you can see what they meant about the rhythm. In fact, what Orff has written are cross rhythms between the choir and the orchestra. And what keeps the pulse of this whole thing is. If you think the orchestra is actually in one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, we are one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one. But it all still adds up to the same thing. And so the thing we mustn't do is hurry. So we have to keep it really carefully in control. All of the patterns in this section have worked together to create an expectation. We've been pulled into this melody and rhythm when it's very, very quiet. So if some is good, more is better. The pattern is the same, but now, instead of having to lean forward to try and work out what we're listening to, we're treated to a wall of sound. Whatever the reason for its appeal, O Fortuna is a piece that people love. Anne Marie Minhall presents Classic FM's Afternoon Request show. How often does the piece get asked for?
2: Carmina Burana is a hugely popular work on Classic FM as a whole, particularly on requests. And I love the fact that we go from that amazing, iconic opening to Intratina in balance. So depending on how the listener is feeling that day, it might be something to motivate. It might be something just to mark a personal day, a a big journey, something big coming up, something epic. We have had requests where people are in labor. Generally, the call is coming from the husband who sounds more stressed probably (laughs) than his other half. Our listeners always get in touch for so many different reasons. And when they want epic, I think I will always think about Oh Fortuna because I would struggle, I was thinking about this, to come up with a piece of music that starts in such a dramatic fashion and definitely that beginning, there it is, right with you. And the voices, I mean, that's the power of a choir, particularly seeing a choir live. You just think, what? And it's so short and it's just like this fast, furious, vocal ride. And then suddenly it's two and a half minutes. You go, what happened there? I mean, it's not been matched since, I think, by anybody. If I was Karl Orff, I'd be pretty pleased with that.
0: Why does she think choral music is popular with her listeners?
2: There's something that choral music brings to us. There's something about that human voice that just can touch in no other way that anything else can. We do get a lot of requests for choral music. And I always delight in the fact that Classic FM's just celebrated its 31st birthday. And the very first piece of music was Zadok the Priest. Handels classic. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's a joyful Brindisi, the drinking song, or whether it's Andrea bocelli singing time to say goodbye, or whether it's Zadok, whatever it is. And if it captures you at a certain time, a certain day, a certain moment in your life. I mean that's extraordinary, isn't it?
0: Excellent. So if we just now, and then when we get to page seven, this is not staccato. The whole is... choir sound is now broadening out and getting louder, and in forte, but not fortissimo. Save that for. And as we get towards the end of this movement, all the restraint and precision of the middle section of the work is completely abandoned. For...
3: And the final words get equally dramatic. So at this hour, without delay, pluck the vibrating strings. Since fate strikes down the strong, everyone weep with me. One critic wrote that the text highlights how few people in those medieval days had real control over their own destiny. But still, the poem rings with a passion for life and the need for enjoying the good things while fate allows
0: and the choir has one long final cry while the orchestra, or in this case, Fingers of Phil, goes a little crazy underneath. And all that happens at the beginning and the end of Karl Orff's most famous work and one of the most recognisable choral pieces in history. The next time you hear it, and you will hear it, at least you'll know where it comes from. That's it for this edition of Change Your Tune from the Bach Choir. I hope you've enjoyed it and maybe discovered something about this iconic piece. A special thank you to our guests Linton Stevens and Anne-Marie Minhall. To hear more of the stories behind some of the world's most famous choral pieces and the full interviews with some of our stellar guests, search for Change Your Tune wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like it, please give us a rating and a review. It really does help People find us and pass on the link to everyone you know.
3: Also, if you've enjoyed getting to know more about Carmina Barana, I've put together a playlist of some other rousing and dramatic choral works. You can get it by signing up to our newsletter, where we'll also send you all of the latest news on this podcast, on upcoming performances, as well as giving you even more insight into everything that happens behind the scenes at the Bach Choir. Search for the Bach Choir online, plus, I'll put that link in the show notes.
0: Thank you, Eloise. We're going for the big finish. Until the next time, goodbye.